welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. This is a program for people who want to learn more about their interior lives and stories like Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Robert Kolker is our guest today. He wrote about the heart-trending story of a mid-century American family who had 12 children, six of whom were diagnosed with schizophrenia, and they became science's greatest hope in the quest to understand the disease schizophrenia. Don and Mimi Galvin were living the American dream. After World War II, Don's work with the Air Force brought them to Colorado, where their 12 children perfectly spanned the baby boom, the oldest born in 1945, the youngest in 65. And in those years, there was an established script for a family like the Galvins, hard work, mobility, domestic harmony. But behind the scenes, a different story psychological breakdown, shocking violence, hidden abuse, and by the mid-1970s, six of the 10 Galvin boys, one after another, were diagnosed as schizophrenia. How could all of this happen to one family? We had the incredible chance of sitting down for a kitchen coffee table talk with Robert Kolker. I'm a little bit uh, gobsmacked today to be speaking with Robert Kolker, not only because of his immense talent as a journalist, but his willingness to go into topics that I care so deeply about. He, of course, is the best-selling author of Lost Girls, which has been made into a phenomenal TV series. Congratulations on that, Robert. And also, Inside the Mind of an American Family, now a 2020 Oprah pick, and of course, a New York Times bestseller. Robert, I'm so happy to see you today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. It's, I'm really, really pleased to be talking to you. When I first wrote my book on mental health, my publisher said, I love the book, but nobody is going to read it because nobody likes stories about mental illness. And I was flummoxed to see the response to your book, Robert. Did you expect it at all? Um, certainly, it's, it's connecting in a way I never would have expected. Um, I did work hard to try and make sure that it worked as a family story independent of mental illness, even though it quite obviously is a book about mental illness. There's a lot of mental illness in the family. I was hoping that anyone could read it. And even if mental illness isn't in their family, they'd be able to connect with it in some way and relate to it. It's really about overcoming hardships and moving through some of the worst things that can happen in life and, and finding hope on the other side. And so I, I wanted it to translate, but I had no idea that it really uh, would, would get as big as it did. <laughs> I mean, the moment when an author hears from Oprah Winfrey, it is probably so surrealistic. I want to hear what you said to her when she said, hey, this is Oprah. I'll have to start by saying that I had never imagined that I would get a call like that. I mean, the, most Oprah books are fiction. So it's not like I even, you know, worked each day writing it thinking maybe Oprah will notice you know it just wasn't even in in the cards so but then one day I'm you know sitting at home worrying about the pandemic like everyone else it's March and the city is shutting down I'm wondering if anyone's going to be selling books even you know in the wow. month to come and my phone rings and it's from and no caller ID and so I don't bother picking it up and nobody leaves a voicemail and then I get an email from the publicist at Doubleday saying could you pick up the next time somebody calls your phone? Pick up and the next spam call you get, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, very weird call to get from from the publicity guy. Normally, he's very, very specific about what's happening sure. and when. So the phone rings and I pick it up and I hear, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I just, you know, I just burst out laughing because, uh, you know, I was spared being 
thinking that it was a prank, right? Because if it had come out of the blue, I would have said, no, this is, you're fooling. This is a friend of mine. It's not really Oprah. But since the publicist had teed it up, I just started laughing because who knew this could happen? But, you know, then the more I talked to her, the more I saw how much um, it kind of made sense for her. But mental health and mental illness has really been an issue of hers for decades now. Yeah. That, um, that a family like this, like the Galvins, the, who I write about in Hidden Valley Road, they probably would have been on her show um, if she still had a daily Oprah Winfrey show. Um, that, it, that it's very much one of the things she does is talk about finding hope in hardship. And so uh, it seems like, um, I'm very excited to say, it seems that she really connected with it. It was um, stunning to me because the topics of anxiety and depression are now on the mind of almost everyone because quarantine has created a lot of people who are suddenly aware of their own mental health. Bipolar disorder has become uh, kind of in the news because of Kanye. Uh, but there are so few books written about schizophrenia because it is so misunderstood. It affects roughly 1% of the population. And yet your book, as far as I can remember, is the first book to specifically delve in to the roots of schizophrenia, how people who have children with schizophrenia have been blamed, the various treatments through the years. And so I want you to talk as a journalist, first of all, about the different minds that you took to this, Robert, because one was from the journalism mind to explain schizophrenia, obviously, and the other was as a person who could listen to this family story and make it relevant to all. Those two minds really were exactly what I, how I visualized things as I was going into this, because talking to people about difficulties that they've experienced is something that I have a lot of experience with. I was at New York Magazine for 17 years writing every kind of story about every kind of difficulty that people faced. Uh, talking with vulnerable people is something I did with my first book, Lost Girls, talking about families, about their own family issues and their, their estrangements and their arguments with one another is something that I've, I've done before as well. So that was one mind. But then the other mind, writing about mental illness and about genetics and neurology and neurobiology, um, uh, and the history of the thinking of these things and drugs and pharmacology, that was all new. And so to me, that was exciting because one reason why a person gets into this business is to be thrown into the deep end and learn new things. It's enjoyable. It's, it's what makes, it's what makes it fun. Like you get to talk to, you know, the brain surgeon or the, or the guy who had to land the plane, you know, when everybody was in trouble, you, you, you get to live a little, vicariously. So this was a chance to do that, but it was very intimidating. And as you said, not a lot of um, real popular understanding of schizophrenia. And I had misconceived notions. I mean, I felt like schizophrenia was like bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety in that we had found medications that did the trick. And all you had to do was find the right mix for yourself and you were back on back in action. But that just isn't the case with schizophrenia. The, the drugs are all different versions of the same drugs that have been around for 50 years. Those drugs are symptom suppressors. They can be very helpful in managing patients and, and up to a point, but then 
then suddenly you can't really turn back the clock and it doesn't really help. And so I had to learn new things as well. Yeah, we'll get into that also. Just so many people with schizophrenia whom I know who have just said that they cannot deal with the side effects. They'd rather actually deal with the behaviors that come from the illness itself than deal with the lethargy and the weight gain and the heart problems that are associated with those. Um, I want to start with the Galvin family because if, if you take us all back to 1950s and how little mental illness was spoken about, then you understand Mimi and you understand the, the way that she attempted to manage the stigma of mental illness. But even then, she was a spectacular uh, guise for everything being perfect. So what did you learn about Mimi's personality that allowed her through all of these years of illness with six of her 12 children afflicted with schizophrenia to get by doing this? Um, I, I think, I guess the one way to start to answer that question is to say that this was a happy family, that it wasn't a family with 12 children because of some you know, terrible situation where, where they just kept having children. She wanted the children, the, her husband did too. They were kind of rock stars in their community in Colorado Springs in the 50s and early 60s. The kids were football stars and hockey stars. And one of them dated the general's daughter at the Air Force Academy. You know, they were, they were big deals. And um, when the worst possible things happened, it, it hit them in a really hard place. And what was happening in the 50s or 60s in terms of the, the, the professional understanding of schizophrenia was you either viewed people with schizophrenia as real hard luck cases who you would institutionalize forever, or you would look at them as wounded souls who needed, needed a lot of therapy to pull them out of their shell. Uh, like in, I, I never promised you a rose garden, you know, that it was a little bit like the miracle worker or whatever that you needed Annie Sullivan to be determined and to try to poke through the membrane and get and rescue the poor person who is now in an imaginary world. But the problem with that is that the therapists at the time, their recipe for doing that would be to blame the family for the problem. They said that the reason why you're in this imaginary world is that your parents have driven you insane. Specifically, your mother yeah. has made you not just neurotic, but schizophrenic. And that, that was a completely wrong, obviously. And it, and it also created even more of a stigma for families. So when someone like Mimi, to get back to your question, gets faced with this, the last thing she really wants to do is medicalize it. She doesn't want to put her kids in an institution and she doesn't want to be blamed, uh, but she has no other alternative. So at first, for several years, she and her husband hoped for the best and decided to be optimistic and think, well, the kids will just grow out of it and you know, they'll have to fend for themselves. And, and uh, they felt as if they had no other choice because Don, the father, had a very prestigious job and, and he was the only one earning a living for this family. It's not like they were wealthy the uh, the best strategy was to just sort of try to play through it, but then it became impossible to deny. So her denial, I think, came from a very honest place, but it became very destructive as well. And I think that's something that a lot of families now and a lot of your listeners might be interested to hear, that, that this is a story of a family that really was, was damaged by the stigma, damaged by the denial. I want to uh, talk just a little bit more about that denial because First of all, I recognized myself in it when my late husband started to develop signs of mental illness. I have a, a big profile in the city and many people know me and very few people actually understand the mechanisms of mental illness. And of course, you want to just keep up with your life as long as you possibly can. 
but the pace of her life kept coming at me in these pages. The number of lunches, the number of dinners, the number of events that she was, even for a woman of the 1950s, she was on super steroids, wasn't she? Yes, and through all of it, as fitting the time, she was adjacent to her husband because it was her husband who had the social connections and the interesting job. He was a counselor to governors in the American West and they would fly to places like Aspen or Santa Fe or Salt Lake City and go to cultural events and talk with dignitaries. But at the same time, she kind of knew that, that it, was all, it could all disappear in a minute, you know, that if suddenly they were a family dealing with a horrible mental illness, then really how, how well could her husband actually thrive in that environment? So it became a big secret. The behavioral aspects of mental illness are so humiliating to families. It is, you know, the person who runs through the fire at the college um, party, the person who takes their underwear off and walks down the street, the person who runs for president and, and picks a pastor as his vice president. Um, and they're heartbreaking to me to read. But I can imagine that there was a, a part of you in reading how much violence there was in this family, how much abuse there was of the healthy members of the family, that even you must have been overwhelmed by what it must have been like to be in that household. Yes, I mean, I, I do. you said something before about the era we're now in and how we're all going through something difficult. There, there, is, there is a way to kind of read this book as here's a story of a family that went through every imaginable difficulty. There is sexual abuse. There is a murder-suicide, um, there's clergy abuse, there is spousal abuse, and then of course there are, there's, the there's violence among the siblings, the, the brothers battling one another and the police being called on countless occasions to the house on Hidden Valley Road to try to break things up. There's the revolving door of, um, of homelessness to, to jail, to the state hospital, back to homelessness again. It, it just keeps going. That's something that I'm sure people are familiar with in other stories. There's kind of everything there. And in the beginning, I was a little, I was gobsmacked to say, use the word you use to me. I thought like, well, what is this story really about? But the, sis the two sisters in the family, who are the youngest of the 12 children and the only girls, they, they were the first to talk to me. And they had a lot of hope in their voices. They were talking to me because they believed that their family has something to offer, not just a story of denial, but a story of survival, a story of science, because they were studied by researchers who really thought that such a large family might have some clues into our understanding of the illness. And there are some breakthroughs that you can credit to the Galvin family, so, so that offers hope as well. I've heard you make such a wonderful observation, which was each of these girls who were horribly neglected and abused by one of the older brothers could have turned 18 and moved to other cities and sent Christmas cards. Why didn't they? Right. The, the, the t that was the second big question of the book. The first to me was, how does all this happen to just one family? And that's a science question as well as a larger question. And then the other question is, how does that family remain a family? Why didn't they just all shake hands and go their separate ways? Um, there just seemed to be too much tragedy to stomach. And yet you see time and time again, siblings in the family, the children in the family, revisiting the stories of their childhood with new perspectives, finding a way to resolve themselves to interacting with their family on their own terms, and uh, in many cases, turning and helping the brothers who need them the most, even though they might have been victimized by some of those same brothers. And it's, to me, it's remarkable and inspiring.
Yeah, and the power of that, even despite having gone through so much <laughs> together, because there's one view in sort of self-improvement, which is if your family is toxic, release yourself from them completely. And I don't, I really do not agree. I don't, I don't think that in the end, at the, at the end of your life, that you would end up feeling like you'd given your best self if you never actually repaired those bonds with your family. I think it's the big work we're supposed to do as human beings. Yes, and there, there are some children in this family who, who make decisions to set up boundaries and to set up distance and to only control how they interact with the family on their own terms. And since we've watched these, these people from a young age experience all sorts of difficulties, there's, you know, as a reader, you're, when you're reading it, I think you probably think, well, you know, uh, perhaps I might do the same thing. But then you see how every decision has a toll it takes on you. The, 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 the child who decides, I'll never talk to my family again, then suddenly everyone else feels rejected by them and they feel rejected by the family and it just engenders more ill will. And by the same token, a, a child who says, I'm going to take care of everyone and I'm going to go back to the family, that person runs themselves ragged and, and is strung out and, and might actually pass down a lot of um, anxiety to their children. Everything costs something. Every decision has, has an effect. Before we talk about the science and the incredible contribution that this family has given to the understanding of schizophrenia, I always believe that journalists, in their best effort to just be completely objective, probably keep a few of their observations about Mm, I wonder if this would have changed, or I wonder if she'd done this, this might have turned out a little bit better for the family. Was there any of those insights on your own that you kept private that you didn't put in the book because they were actually just your opinion? I think that nine times out of 10, particularly with a longer thing like a book, you have enough room to give everybody's rationale and everybody's point of view so that you, so that you can really allow readers to make their own decisions. And so my reflex is not to weigh in. But there is that one time out of 10 where something's up and, and there are conflicting points of view and you kind of have to play the referee and step in. And I think the, the best thing to do in that situation is to be explicit with readers. You can actually say something like, now here there are two different versions of what happened that night. Seems, you know, th th this person says that, that person says this. It seems kind of more likely that the one is the case than the other, and then you you kind of and then you step back and and you go back to your regularly scheduled strategy. And but, so yeah, you, you're like a very benevolent referee in some way. <laughs> I mean, the the other way to do it is to be a to be an advocacy journalist, a crusading journalist, and that is not my personal approach. But people do it. Like another person writing about this same family might have said, "Who will speak up for this family? I am going to take up their cause, and I will." I'm on their side against injustice, and then suddenly everything gets framed slightly differently. I guess I come from a different tradition in magazine journalism where, where you're slightly more omniscient and less opinionated that way. So on the science side, th this entire family gave you the benefit of being able to look at their medical records. They allowed you to interview each and every one of the remaining family members. Um, you did long interviews with each of the individuals of those, especially of the boys with schizophrenia, which of those did you find to be such a compelling human being? I say that because so many people that I speak to with schizophrenia almost border on genius, and they are going along a path that all, sounds like poetry and inspired 
um, dictates from above and then they just lose the, the kind of mind garbage that we're all familiar with. Was there any of the boys that still had that quality to you? The two of the brothers who have delusions, you know, who believe that they're descended from an octopus or whatnot, what surprised me as a layman was their delusions are very consistent. So I'll ha- I would have a long conversation with Donald, the oldest son, and he would talk about being descended from an octopus and how he actually was born to a different family named the Galvins 10 years earlier than what's on his birth certificate. And that family was in Ireland. And then he got sent here. And so his parents aren't really his parents. And by the way, he also is a fish, you know, stuff like that. And I would, and then the next day I would turn to one of the siblings and say, you know, Donald told me all this. And they'd say, oh yeah, he's been saying those exact same things for 30 years, you know, and and so he- They don't change. Yeah. So he's occupying a very particular space and vantage point. Also, he's charming. Like he's, you know, I mean, I'm coming into it late when he, he's not young and, and volatile. And I guess the stereotype is that people mellow, particularly with medication, if they had schizophrenia, if they're diagnosed with schizophrenia. But, you know, he, he, you can see that he, um, he loves his family. He enjoys being around them. He's very introverted. He's not sitting in, if you take him to a restaurant and, he sit, and he'll sit there very quietly throughout the entire meal and maybe answer questions that are asked of him, but at no point will he stand up and start holding forth about the octopus or whatever. Yeah, but right. he's just quiet and, and he knows everybody. Like, he know, you know, he knows chapter and verse, like who's married to whom and whose kids are where and where they're living. So he's engaged in, in both worlds at the same time, which is really something. I, I should say, I knew nothing about severely mentally ill people like these guys before meeting them. And one real worry I had at the very beginning was, how do I keep this book from being a monster movie? Like, I don't want it to be. And then the fourth son went crazy. And then the fifth son went crazy. I didn't want to do that. And then almost immediately when I met the three surviving brothers who are mentally ill, I was no longer worried about that because they are actual, you know, full-fledged human beings with their own stuff. So it, it, it was easy to write about them as people. Remind me, was it Nick, uh, who was the one son who decided not to get treatment, who didn't go through the medical procedures that the rest of his brothers did? Um, uh, Michael. And it, Michael. It, doesn't seem, it, it seems as if his parents, in a panic, they thought he was having a psychotic break too. But it's possible yeah. that he never really was, and that he just was a hippie who took a lot of drugs and was staring off into space a lot. And apart from couple quick hospital experiences as a in it when when he was 20 he never never needed any sort of mental health treatment again and he's just a he's just living his life and very functional and also very suspicious of the mental health system because Mm -hmm. of his experiences yeah i i thought it would be interesting to hear more from him just because i know so many people who've gone through forced hospitalizations who've gone through these heavy loads of of uh, schizophrenic drugs can really come back with horror stories. And then you can talk to them almost as human beings about what that was like. Did you come away with any um, strong feelings of your own about the over-medication of people with schizophrenia? One way of looking at the Galvin family is that the, the sons got sick at the, at the high point of, of Thorazine and Clozapine. The diagnosing meds for this illness was never more popular than it was in the late 60s and early 70s. And that perhaps in, in recent years, there's a little more finesse, a little more nuance among doctors about, well, how much do we give them and how much do they really need? And maybe some cognitive therapy to help them prevent psychotic breaks combined with a little bit of medicine instead of just doping them up. Yeah. Um, so, so you see the damage. And of course, we know there are studies now that 
that suggests that long-term, it's possible that the meds don't have much effect at all, that people who have been unmedicated their whole lives have the same number of, of relapses or psychotic breaks as the people who are medicated. So that's troubling. And then there are physical uh, side effects. In the worst cases, early death as a result of these drugs where you it's not just weight gain, it you know, wears down your system, it's heart trouble, it's neuroleptic malignant syndrome that can really, in the cases of two of these brothers, probably contributed to their deaths. So it's a real mixed bag, the medication, and, and, but I, I want to be careful in talking about it because I don't want to be entirely against it because there are some people whose lives have been changed tremendously. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about, you mentioned a, a person you know who's, who's brilliant and talented and, and has trouble with the medication. I think about Ellen Sachs, who has that brilliant memoir, The Center Cannot Hold. She's this brilliant legal mind who had severe acute schizophrenia. And for many, many years, she was avoiding the meds for all of those reasons, because she thought it would be worse. And then finally, when she, when she turned the corner and said, I'm going to try it, it settled so many of her problems and so many of her issues. She was able to sit down and write her memoir, help other people. So there are cases where the meds help. Uh, I want to ask about all of the boys, it seemed, had most of their psychotic breaks between 18 and 23. And that is like in the developmental stage of schizophrenia, kind of the time frame. And I go to these conferences and I will sit next to a woman whose son had bipolar disorder or a son uh, who was schizophrenia and to the nail. It is when they went off to college, perhaps they were experimenting with drugs under a tremendous amount of stress and not sleeping. I mean, I have heard the story so many times, Robert, that it's almost like, oh, wow. And now in your book, I hear it six times over, all in that same age frame, all experimenting with illicit drugs and all under a kind of pressure that their brains probably were not set up for. So do you think that those things contribute to the onset of schizophrenia? Very possible. And hindsight's twenty twenty. but one brother looks toward head injuries he had, and he blames what's happened to him on, on head injuries. And then it's easy to look at all of the brothers and see cataclysmic traumas that they experienced right before their first psychotic break. So Peter, the youngest, he's the one who's off the schedule. He was 14, I think, a little early. He witnessed his father have a stroke and collapse, right, you know, just a few feet in front of him. Others had, uh, one had his wife leave him, you know, another one had a breakup with a girlfriend, another one got fired from a job, you know, these are all, they all feel like triggering events. And it's tricky, right? Because you could argue that that means that perhaps it's, it really is a, a, like a therapeutic problem, not a medical problem. Uh, maybe this is uh, old, uh, the old-fashioned understanding of mental illness where you don't need a pill. Maybe you just, they just needed good therapy. But I don't think that's the case. And as the book goes into great detail, there's this sense that schizophrenia is a developmental disorder, that you might be genetically predisposed to be vulnerable to developing the disease, but that some people with the vulnerability never actually manifest the symptoms and others do. And the difference is the trauma, whether it's drug use or a girlfriend breaking up with you or a head injury. Um, I keep coming back to head injuries because I keep hearing from doctors when they're asked the question, if there's a lot of schizophrenia in your family, what do you do with your kids? And they, the, the first answer always seems to be, make sure they wear helmets when they're playing sports. I want to, um, to ask about, because the, once the 
Galvin family went in and decided that they were going to all be tested, there was um, one genetic frame that showed up. It was a similarity in every child who had schizophrenia. Um, what does that mean for science and how does it actually help with the understanding of what schizophrenia is and how it develops? Well, there was a period after the human genome was sequenced in maybe 15 years ago or 17 years ago where where everyone thought that this was going to be the end of illness as we know it, that all you'd have to do is stack up everybody with diabetes and look at their genome and then stack it up against the genome of so-called normal people and see what the differences are. And you'd find the smoking gun gene and then you'd find a drug to medicate it and you'd be done by dinner time. Like it was thought that it would be a miracle, but it turns out that with complicated conditions like schizophrenia, where, which is just a syndrome, a collection of symptoms anyway. It's not a disease or a virus like COVID-19. It's, it's more of an idea than anything else. There is no one smoking gun gene. So they keep finding more and more genes that are players. And each of them, each time they find a new gene, it turns out each of those genes is playing a smaller and smaller role in what's happening with schizophrenia. So there are more than 100 genes that might have something to do with it. But that makes families like the Galvins even more interesting because if you can study them and find something that they all share, then it can point the way to exactly what uh, genetic function that gene is serving, what that mutation is doing to their brains, how it affects brain function, and it, it has the effect of sort of shining a light on where the problem is. Whereas before you were just traveling in the dark, now you have a flashlight. So the flashlight in the case of the Galvins is a gene called Shank. Two, and it has to do with brain function. It has to do with, uh, it's a special messenger or communication cell, which kind of gets into the whole, it, it fits nicely with the idea of um, schizophrenia being a, um, a sensory processing problem, which a lot of people believe it is. The movie A Beautiful Mind and the book Beautiful Mind, they do a good job of talking about schizophrenia as a sensory overload kind of issue. Yeah. And so it's possible that what people can learn from the Galvins is not that everyone has this Shank 2 issue out there but that what the Shank 2 is doing is something you should be looking at elsewhere. It's fascinating because I don't know if in all of your uh, research you came across the Hearing Voices Network, which is a group mm -hmm. of individuals with schizophrenia who have really trained themselves to be able to communicate with the voices that they hear, to listen, to give their voices instruction, to give them timeouts. And in many ways, hearing you describe the function of Shank 2, it, it just occurs to me what they're doing is overriding that genetic expression, teaching themselves coping skills to actually tamp down that extrasensory input. Yeah, they're making friends with what they've got there. Right. Which I think, it, I think that's fascinating. And I think you, and you see it with other so-called disabilities as well, obviously with deafness and whatnot. And I do feel like they, they have a real important role to play here going forward. I feel like it's like dominoes falling that in the last 40 years or so, a lot of stigmatized conditions have come out of the shadows, whether it's depression or anxiety, bipolar disorder, or even autism. People will talk about it now and have a higher tolerance for it. It's not a taboo subject anymore. And I think schizophrenia is the next one. And hopefully this book helps, but also there are the many, many memoirs. I'm not, I, I don't want to claim that I'm the guy who's knocking down the door here, but the, there are lots of there are lots of great forces out there that are doing great work on this. A friend asked me to ask you whether or not you had an opinion about the number of times that the Galvins had their kids in and out of state institutions and what the cost to taxpayers was for that. How many 
times they were cycled into inpatient care and then out into residential treatment centers and then apartments through subsidies? And would they have been better as long-term residents in a state hospital? Well, the, the revolving door for most of them was the state hospital. Um, I, I think there's no question that between the jails and, and the revolving door of, a, in a, of, of being out on the street versus the state mental hospital, the burden on, on social services and law enforcement is intense. And it's also without question that this is not a cookie cutter condition. So there could be a community mental health center, let's say right in Colorado Springs, with really caring, really dedicated people who have an approach that really helps with Matthew, but that is no good at helping with Peter. And so think of the money and resources that you're throwing at this problem if, if, if everybody has a different solution. It's really hard. And I guess it would be technically more cost effective if we just had a hospital that took them in and never let them leave. But, but I think there are other problems with that that, that, that we, we face, you know, particularly with people who are misdiagnosed and then suddenly battling to get out. The other day I was going in shopping and there was a person with schizophrenia. Obviously, I can kind of tell when they're having conversations with a voice in their head. And I watched them with a much different degree of interest and empathy and compassion because of your book. And I wonder how you have changed from having spent so much time in the minds of people with schizophrenia and within this family unit. The one thing I've become convinced of is that the volatility of such people and the unpredictability of them and the, the, the concern that they might become violent is in direct, there's a direct relationship between that and the amount of anxiety they're feeling. If, some, if they're becoming a stranger to themselves, if they're going through impulses like running through a bonfire that they don't understand, it's probably freaking them out and they're worried. And so that means that they might be more inclined to get into a fight with someone, more inclined to become violent because they're suddenly their, their fight or flight instincts are up. They're defending themselves against a, an unseen force that they don't understand. And I love, and, oh, I love that uh, observation so much, Robert. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but I believe we're all on a spectrum of mental wellness. And when we are all coping in different ways and have behaviors coming up that we don't recognize, like, why am I going for my second glass of wine? That's troubling. Now imagine if you couldn't control that, if you actually didn't have the processing center to be able to help yourself back off, think really realistically about what your other options were and prevent yourself from just running into the fire. Think about that. So much um, about, um, and I know you know about this, about meditation-based stress reduction. It's about self-awareness and about paying attention to your own attention and understanding how your mind wanders from here to there. So many people with schizophrenia lack self-awareness entirely. They have no idea that they even have an illness. And so they're on the opposite end of that configuration. And it's so, so imagine the, tr the difficulty they must have regulating their reactions to things, uh, particularly if they feel threatened. It's, it's so, I mean, I, I think you've done such a wonderful job dealing with the violence quotient in this because it, it, I think it's in some ways people who are mental health advocates don't serve themselves to say that people with mental illness don't become violent because people with schizophrenia often do for that very reason that you pointed out. It's a small percentage of the population and they're more often victimized. But in cases when they do, they do. And it, it often ends with terrible, terrible circumstances. So I'm curious if you become hooked like I did on mental health and whether you'd ever do another project like this in your lifetime again. Sure. 
Absolutely. I think that the job of someone who writes at length in doing nonfiction is to bring readers into a subject that they don't understand and that perhaps they never thought they might be interested in and then find that they find it very interesting. The Big Short, for instance, you know, I didn't, I really didn't have much of an interest in the material, but suddenly you're sucked into this page turner and you're wondering, well, will they be able to beat the market? Will they be able to predict the crisis? Are they going to be right or wrong? Are they going to get their money out in time? Like, I want to know. And then along the way, I don't realize it, but I'm learning a lot. To me, that's the, that's a fun project to be a part of where you're not just, um, hopefully writing a thrilling story, you're also infusing it with something new. For me, the mental health, mental illness, any, any number of healthcare-related scientific subjects, they are so poorly understood that, that uh, I would love to dive into something like that again, for sure. And that wrapped up our Kitchen Coffee Table Talk with Robert Kolker. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to give us a thumbs up if you like what you hear.